0: Hi, my name's Tori, and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Leticia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when
1: starting shift work. Hi, my name is Olivia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict.
0: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crowe.
2: I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things.
0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Five Things. My name is Liz Crow
2: and I'm Jessie Spur.
0: and today we're welcoming Michelle Doidge who's the clinical nurse consultant for the Infection Monitoring and Prevention Service and was the absolute superstar during COVID here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome
1: Michelle. Thank you.
2: Wow. Yeah, that certainly brought a lot of um, the infection monitoring to the forefront of everyone's mind. It made a lot of infectious diseases consultants famous around the world and kind of shone a light on work that was often done quite invisibly in the hospital. I'm really keen to rewind and get your origin story and kind of where you started nursing and how you ended up in such a specific area like infection monitoring and prevention.
1: Yeah, well, my journey started, I am trained um, through QUT, so university trained, and I did my last prac at Wattlebrae Infectious Diseases Unit, and then started working, finished in the November and started working in the February there. So at that time, that was 1994, so that was when we were caring for people with HIV-AIDS and was a really significant time for nursing and it was a fantastic first job, so Met some fabulous uh, people, some fabulous mentors and also um, some just amazing patients at that time. So, you know, young men and and women as well that we cared for and it was a real privilege. I actually met my husband at the s- at that time too, so he's a nurse as well. Oh, there you mm. go. So, yes.
0: um, the best of times and worst of times. Yeah,
1: that's right, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, you've literally always been with in the infection monitoring and prevention kind of field yeah
1: yeah so an infectious diseases nurse and then and then went on to become an infection prevention um, preventionist yeah
0: wow that's so interesting now i i reckon this is probably the greatest first uh point we've had on our five things podcast your first point is know your bugs Love your
1: bugs. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. I love my bugs, and that, I suppose that's why I have stayed in infectious diseases um, nursing. Um, I, I love the bugs. I love um, you know the microorganisms, the the pathology of it, going to the lab, understanding it, and just it's it's something that affects every part of nursing. Uh, we can't get away from it, no matter what nursing you do. There's microorganisms. There's germs. And so I think it's just so important that you, you know them, um, you're not frightened of them, you understand them. And I suppose understanding what your role is with, with infectious diseases, with communicable diseases. You know, healthcare associated infection affects so many and um, journeys that our patients have you know, and MROs we deal with it every day, so multi-resistant organisms. So you're going to come across that every day in your nursing career. So I just think that it's it's a really important part to to know and appreciate the, the different bugs that we have. Can I ask, if we can just almost put on pause, what is, like, what is an
0: infection? Like, what is an infectious disease? Like, what is the actual definition of that?
1: Oh, the definition... <laughs> You've triple layered it. later question. Yeah, you have. Um, so, look, infection—it's—it's it's when we have, um, I suppose, germs, microorganisms that in, in sort of invade and grow within our body and, and can cause problems. Uh, with infection prevention, we also are interested in colonization. So, so that's when the it doesn't necessarily harm the person, but it—you have a bug that can affect other people can harm other people. So that's the big part of infection prevention and what we do is that even though someone's colonised with a bug, we will isolate them because we don't want it to harm another person who it would cause infection for. So, so we've had infection, we have colonisation and we're also really interested in, in healthcare-associated infections. So it's the infections that we uh, give to people as part of their healthcare. So that's a big part of infection prevention. That's what we want to, want to stop, want to prevent.
2: I, I really struggled with this a bit when I was learning it um, in my first degree in exercise science and then that kind of helped uh, advance it when I took it on in nursing and understanding that difference between colonisation, which is a, a microorganism growing somewhere, contamination, which is a microorganism growing somewhere it's not originally found, which is a lot of what we try and prevent and kind of will go through with the podcast. And then infection, which is the microorganism growing somewhere where it's kind of not normally found um, and invading into tissues, causing an inflammatory response, invading into tissues, bloodstream, causing an inflammatory response and a pathological response in the body, I guess, was the the mental model that helped understand everything, that kind of unlocked understanding how to do good wound care, Uh, how to do good preventative management and I think we often get a bit confused with trying to just think about these things in isolation like how to prevent an infection in isolation without thinking about those different things so hopefully that's kind of a good
1: yeah that's a great description
0: okay so again me being the novice in all of this what would be like the primary bugs that we should be worried about in a hospital if I'm a new nurse or I'm you know I'm anyone really in a hospital
1: Multi-resistant organisms, that, that's what you will see walking through the wards and they're the patients that we we predominantly isolate. So what they are is uh, uh, MRSA, so you may have golden staff, uh, VRE. We've got CPE, which is probably our new one. So VRE stands for? For vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. So there's a bug that is resistant to antibiotics, is that? That's right. So the Enterococcus yeah. is your, bu- your bug yeah. and your vancomycin resistant. So that's your antibiotic. So so it's resistant to the antibiotic that we would primarily use to, to treat it if it was an infection. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. And so what comes next? So we have ESBL, so extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing organisms. So that can be across numerous organisms. So again, that's around the the antibiotic mm-hmm. that the antibiotics that we would use to treat it. Uh, we also have a new one, which we're, uh, I wouldn't say excited, but we're most concerned about is CPE. So that's carbapenemase producing Enterobacteriales, And that's around the entrobacteriales is a group of organisms and the carbapenemase is the, is the group of, of antibiotics. So again, we, it's, it's the limiting of antibiotics that we have to treat which is why we don't want our most vulnerable patients to get these organisms because it means that we don't have antibiotics to, to treat the the infection and then they become very sick. So what happens if you
0: get something like this and there's nothing to treat it? Like what, what do we do? Like how do people recover or you live with it forever?
1: Well unfortunately if you're somebody who has a bone marrow transplant or something where you're immunosuppressed during intensive care. So uh, a sickest of our sick patients, unfortunately, it can mean that you actually die. Uh, And around the world, that is what is happening. So we we see in in places like India where they really limited antibiotics because of the the resistant um, organisms that they have, that they're not doing simple things like chemotherapy now. They're not doing operations that we we um, do that are normal for us because they've got no antibiotics if they get an infection so it's a really serious problem and that's why that is a basis of why we do the infection prevention strategies that's why we do standard precautions it's why we isolate people
2: and it can mean that we end up having to uh, in the attempt to treat those those microorganisms using multiple antibiotics on that patient which has a pretty big side effect burden um, a cost and time burden and for really prolonged periods of time because the antibiotic, the, the singular antibiotic that would have provided coverage for it is off the table. So you might need to use two, three, four to try and adequately cover for it but also for a potentially five to ten times longer And
0: treatment. so do those people have to stay in hospital for the
1: duration of that treatment? They're usually pretty sick, so yes, mm. but you can also have some antibiotics as, as outpatient but uh, yeah, you're right. And even some of the antibiotics that that are sort of our top line antibiotics may have other side effects too. So they cause other problems while you're trying to treat the infection. Yeah. So I guess this for me, you know,
0: like we're, we're about to talk about hand hygiene, which I know that people will be rolling their eyes. But I guess what's really standing out to me is that this is why it's so important for someone like me who travels around the hospital going to all the different wards why should it be absolutely pedantic about my hand hygiene and my infection prevention? Because I could unwillingly, unknowingly, be spreading something that is life-threatening to someone else in our hospital.
2: Always oh, said you're a vector of disease. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. <laughs> uh, that is right. And and you're right, people will roll their eyes, but we underestimate how important hand hygiene is and how simple it is. It is so simple. We, we just need to get it right at the right times. Um, and like we've all heard, we've got the five moments of hand hygiene, which people get very caught up in. What are the five moments? Have I, am I doing it right? The, the five moments is really a methodology for auditing. And it gives us some guidance of when we should wash our hands that is going to uh, most protect our patients. But really, it's really simple. It's really cleaning in when you're going in to see your patient and cleaning out, so when you leave your patient... So when we try and simplify it like that, it makes it a lot more attainable for people to achieve. Mm. Um, and particularly we you know, we like people to really wash their hands at the at the bedside so the patients can see and when you're doing... ...just before you're doing a procedure because you're doing something invasive to the patient. So it is really simple and we've made it simple because we used to, in the old days, wash your hands, soap and water. Now we've got alcohol-based hand products everywhere. So it couldn't be simpler, but we just need to, in a really busy environment, clinical environments, work out how we can achieve that Prior, when we're caring for our patients so that we can reduce infection.
0: Yeah. And so I guess a big part of that, I would imagine, is making sure that those gels, the sinks are strategically placed. So it's almost every time I turn around, I can see something that prompts me to think it's time to uh, wash my hands, it's time to clean my hands.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's why we have, well, we aim to have it on every bed. Yeah. So because it's most important in that patient environment, and the patient environment is pretty much behind your curtains. Behind your curtains or if you're in a single room, once you enter that, that door. So that's when we want. So we don't want any barriers to you being able to achieve that. So that's why we need it as close to the patient as possible because that's the hand washing that we most care about. Mm. I can remember so distinctly as a junior social
0: worker um, being audited for my hand washing. and I had to wash my hands in this, you know, like put this stuff all over my hands and then wash it and then go under a UV light and just how surprised I was to see this fluorescent stuff between my fingers or, you know, areas where I clearly missed, and I, I imagine that that's you know like that's left a real <laughs> impression on me today when when I'm washing my hands or gelling my hands, I'm between the fingers, on the tops, on the bottoms. but I guess you know is it is that why it's easy to get complacent? I guess because you think, oh well I've done it, but how do we know
1: that we've done it thoroughly? Yeah, you would have been done glitterbug as part of your education, so it's a really important tool for hand hygiene education. And you're right, we need to do it properly because you can do it very quickly and often, which you may have found you might have missed out your thumbs or missed out a part of your hand. And I think it's just getting into a routine as, as, as healthcare professionals to know that, you, like you do with every every other skill, know that you've done it thoroughly, done it well. It's about the five moments, but it's about also doing it well.
0: Yeah.
2: It's building it as a habit, really. And obviously then the the system design to nudge towards doing that habit is a really important thing with hand hygiene but just practicing it building it into a habit and doing the same way every time 20 seconds 20 to 30 seconds and then the big thing with the hand gel is letting it dry it's you're not considered clean until your hands are have dried that's evaporated off as well, so it's not just give it a rub and then start touching stuff straight away.
1: Mm. And the 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 great thing with the gel too is you can put it on your hands and you can be walking to where you got to go. You know, if you're standing standing at a sink, you've got to stand there till it sort of happens. And you'll know if you can't put your gloves on if you need to put gloves on, um, then you'll know that's not dry because it's really difficult to put gloves on if you've got gelled hands. So. One of the things we've been
0: encouraging with the podcast is patterning, you know, so for nurses to get into a pattern of how they do assessments, how they're going to organise their day. And I guess that's what you're talking about, Jesse, isn't it? That part of that patterning or part of that habit is I need to clean my hands. I need to clean my hands. I've done this. I've touched that. I need to clean my hands. I've walked outside. I've touched a door and I need to clean my hands. Just that it's, you know, in the foremost of your mind all the time.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and it doesn't have to be – we're most worried and concerned about the at the actual bedside and also around – you said about touching the environment. Yeah, when you've got frequently touched objects in your environment, they're the things that become the most contaminated. And so being aware of what those frequently touched objects are and making sure you do wash your hands after that or do hand hygiene after that. So in a hospital, what is the most frequently touched? I imagine lift buttons, door handles. Yeah, yeah.
2: Keyboards and phones. Oh yeah, of yeah. course. Keyboards are probably the dirtiest things in the hospital.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but it's the things that are in the patient environment that we're most. So I suppose you've got your, your, you know, your buzzers, your light switches, oh, yeah. um, your bed rails, things that you're going to touch and then touch the patient. So yes, things like keyboards. And I suppose we do have keyboards that are right with, with our digital hospitals that are right beside our patients so yes keyboards monitors screens those type of
0: things this might be a bit random but that's the way i roll uh where do things like a personal mobile phone because i often think about that like you know lots of people carry their personal mobile phone they put it down on the you know bench while they wash their hands in the bathroom they've got it on the counter you know like how cont- do you know how contaminated are mobile phones and should we clean those as well often?
1: Yes, we should. I'm sure there's lots of literature out there around how dirty mobile phones are, as, as with keyboards. We should wash them often um, because we're, they're personal mobiles now where yep. we may have had communication equipment that the hospital gave us, we left at work. Now we, we take them home with us. So I think it's really important to, to clean them. Um, because, yeah, you've got them everywhere. You're taking your bugs home as well, Mm. as well as bringing bugs in from from home and having them right in the patient environment.
0: And so any hospital phones, like deck phones or pages, they're the sorts of things that also should be wiped down and aware that we're carrying them from place to place, Mm -hmm.
1: putting them down, picking them up. That's right. I think it's become more important too with COVID. People are more aware of it. And so you're protecting your work colleagues who are going to use that equipment because from respiratory viruses pretty much, and from you know, diarrhoea and vomiting sort of viruses, so protecting stuff, you have to come into, into my units. that they're, they're always wiping down everything, as you can imagine.
0: Right. So, Michelle, we hear a lot um, in the community even as well as in the hospital about the importance of not having antibiotics unless you really need them. Your third point is, you know, talking about the nursing role in prescribing and deep prescribing
1: antibiotics. Can you talk us through why is this so important? Well, it's important because of what I talked about earlier around multi-resistant organisms. Uh, it's – we like to call it antimicrobial stewardship, um, sort of a bigger terminology for it, but it is really some simple strategies and it's, it's underestimated the role nurses play within antimicrobial stewardship, so looking after antibiotics basically – so we have a role because we are the main advocates for our patients. We, uh, we give the antibiotics. And so we, we get to see um, – well we know whether our patients can take oral tablets. So again, it's really important thing with when you can move to oral as opposed to IV because you want to remove any invasive devices that you have. So removing that cannula. We also are the people that take the specimens. So getting a good specimen – making sure that we get that, we get that off, you know, to the lab, try and get that before you you are starting your antibiotics. Uh, we are also, you know, the people who make sure that our patients get antibiotics in a timely manner. Uh, no, Really important for when we have a patient who we're suspecting might have sepsis. So that's so important to get the antibiotics to that patient as soon as possible because it's, it's life-changing or it's saving a life. Yeah. Uh, but it's also important just on a... On a daily basis, making sure that our patients get all their doses of antibiotics when they're written up. And and it's also important to for us to be advocating and speaking to the multidisciplinary team, to the to the medical officers around, questioning, you know, this patient's been on antibiotics for seven days. Are we finishing this course? Where are we up to with their treatment? And making sure that we've got the right antibiotics. So I think that nurses can can be a little bit more diligent with looking at pathology results. That's something that we can play a role in too. It's not just something that medical officers officers do. So when we take and this probably goes back to know your bug, love your bugs, you're going back and understanding what actual organism your patient has. So understanding that and understanding the types of antibiotics that that work on those on those organisms. And can I ask, you know, like
0: often, um, you know, I can remember a long time ago, you know, people would get a cold and go and get antibiotics um, for that, which of course was going to have no difference to a cold. Um, but people, you know, like the idea of taking something. We're trying to move right away from that these days, aren't we, to say you only take antibiotics if you've actually grown something or you've got something that's going to be responsive to it just because of these super bugs that are around.
1: Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So you know, our colds are viruses and, and our antibiotics don't work on viruses, they work on bacteria. So yeah, really important that we're not asking for antibiotics from our GPs or from our medical officers if we don't need them. Um, they're re- they're, of course, there's times when we do need them, but um, but really not putting that pressure on to, to get antibiotics when they're not necessary.
0: Okay, so our number four is respecting invasive devices. What what are the range of invasive devices that we regularly see at the hospital and why do we need
1: to be so respectful of them? Oh, the range. The range is huge. But simply, even our IV cannulas. So our, our drips, our IV cannulas, our nasogastric tubes, our... Um, our urinary lines, Our urinary catheters, they're big ones. So it can go on and on. Basically, it's anything that you know, we're inserting into a patient's body anything. It's invasive. So it's a really good word, invasive. And I don't think we appreciate that because it's invasive to the patient. It's breaking our key sort of uh, skin. It's breaking our skin in most cases or mucous membranes, which is our protection against infection. So it's it's something for us as, as healthcare professionals, nurses, that is so normal to our everyday life. We, we have... ...these devices in patients and, you know, we look at them, they're not a big deal to us... And, ...and I think we do forget how much of a big deal they are for the patient. How having a device in your body uh, is is a big deal and you want to have that out as soon as possible. And and I think the, the being able to review, make sure that we are reviewing and looking at these devices... ...caring for these devices for our patients is so important and it's important preventing infection, really important. So anytime we
0: have an invasive device, our risk of infection increases. Yes, that's right. And so we wanna be looking for redness, heat, swelling, anything that could tell us that perhaps there's a source of infection around that device. That's
1: right, yeah, so we would say at the very minimum that you should be um, reviewing invasive devices, at least daily and really probably on the nurses sort of shift patterns on your shift, you should be looking at at least daily and more. Mm. So, and making an, a, an assessment as to whether that patient needs that anymore and having the conversation with the with the multidisciplinary team to see, to have a conversation to say, well, what's the plan? What's happening? When can we get this out? Is this a good device for the patient? Is there something better? Uh, so those types of conversations.
0: We've just done a really good podcast on urinary catheters and, uh, you know, the person was saying that often the patient wants the urinary catheter because they're in pain and they don't want to get moving. It seems for lots of nurses to assume that this is making their lives easier, but actually risk of infection, then risk of delirium, then risk of deconditioning, you know, that, that there's consequences for each of those things that we do. And I guess it's a really pivotal role, isn't it, for the nurse to be constantly kind of looking at the big picture for their patient.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, there is consequences and the consequences will mean that the your patient may be staying in hospital for longer um, and have some type of morbidity from it.
2: This is something that's really fascinated me seeing the response to um, COVID uh, over the last few years is this is an infection that's actually threatened us as workers and I think for the first time we've felt that same sort of I've actually finally seen the same parallels with safety with aviation because there's obviously a massive motivation for pilots and crew to maintain safety in aviation because if the plane crashes, they die. Healthcare is a very different model usually because stuff's happening to the patients as failures of our processes or safety, not always happening to us. So that I guess the big consideration is thinking about every sort of infection, microorganism in the hospital with the same level of threat that we perceived it with with COVID can really change the way we look at things. So things like going, is that urinary catheter, can I decontaminate that? Yes, it might have to stay in, but can I actually wipe that down? Can I decontaminate that? Can I clean around there, remove the bacterial load, microorganism load? Those sorts of things of just thinking about also, I guess, the, the longevity of the hospital stays for healthcare-associated infections. Going okay, this patient could be delirious in a couple of weeks and causing us an absolute nightmare. What can I do to prevent this and fu- and speed up them getting out of there? And
1: yeah, you're right, and, and and it is. It comes down to the care of it, so we can review it. But we've also got to care it, like you described. If if we're that that's what's going to the good care of it, and I suppose the selfishness of it. Like we want to, we're always trying to get our patients through hospital you know, quickly get them home, um, but also, we are tight for beds, but we're trying, so, and infection really complicates that, so anything that you can do, and it's so simple, like hand washing, cleaning, caring for something, you know, the, the basic standard precautions that, that are part of infection prevention, these really key things, I think, um, you know, go a long way to preventing infection in our patients beautiful segue into your number five which of course is understanding
0: precautions um you know we come to a door we see a curtain and there's a sign on it saying droplet precaution or you know can you just
1: demystify what the hell does all of that mean (laughs) what does it mean so i said standard precautions so they're our basics so for those that are old school, we call them universal precautions, mm-hmm. but they're standard precautions. So, as as I described, the the hand hygiene, the cleaning, you know, we vaccinate, we we look at, we have sharp safety, we have all these strategies that that um that come together that are the core of infection prevention. So all together, they help to prevent infection. And then what we have, um, transmission based precautions, which is what you're describing with. You know, airborne contact and droplet precautions. So, so if we go back to transmission base, so you look at how the infection is transmitted, and then you apply precautions that will that will interrupt that transmission. So we had for COVID, we were using airborne precautions because. And we're wearing a P2N95 mask because that is the size of the, the aerosol that we believe that people will breathe in. So you need that higher level of mask to be able to stop that transmission to the healthcare worker. So with droplet, we wear a surgical mask. And so that's for things like, like influenza and those other respiratory viruses because they they tend to have a a, a bigger droplet. We don't sort of see them you know, the, the, the mask is enough to protect you from that that droplet coming into your respiratory, sort of into your airways. And then we have contact, which you'll see the most of. And so contact will be for the multi-resistant organisms that we talked about before, so the, the VREs and the CPEs. And that's about stopping – so that the MROs get into the environment and so contacts about you having the the personal protective equipment or the PPE on – that will that will will limit your ability to be able to transfer it to the next patient and and on top of that hand hygiene of course
2: one of the things that I'd just pick up on there Michelle which is really important is it's about interrupting and mitigating spread of inf- or transmission of infections mm-hmm. not eliminating because if we start to interrogate some of these processes as with all safety processes that we deploy they're not they're not perfect They don't always hold up to the acid test of like concrete logic all the time, but it's about reducing the risk rather than eliminating it, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's right. And that's why it is a combination of things. It's a suite of strategies that you put them all together and it helps to minimise the risk of that transmission to staff, but also importantly, to our patients as well.
2: And there's a section of guidelines that sit behind that. So where in Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital can we find the guidelines um, for transmission-based precautions?
1: There is a web page. So you can find them. There's a policy and procedure page where everything is for all the procedures for the hospital. But we have our own um, webpage, our Infection Prevention and Control, and you will find one-stop shop to find all the information that you need for infection prevention and control. But also, to I have a great team that... Are very accessible. We're on the phone all day, every day, supporting the hospital with advice, consulting for um, infection prevention, and, and we're, we are available all the time, education. So, you know, please reach out to us as well. That it really reminds me, when we were
0: having the, you know, preliminary discussion about having you on the podcast, I specifically remember you saying, you know, one of the things that would be really important for you to help our listeners understand is that you are a supportive service, not a surveillance service. And that often, you know, when people think of you, they think, oh God, they're coming to do the, you know, the hand washing audit. Uh, whereas, you know, you're what you're doing is really critical, isn't it? In in the role of, of the of the safety of our patients and of each other.
1: Yes, we are. We're so much more than hand hygiene auditors. Um we are there to help and, and we are every day looking at the patients that come into the hospital, making sure that they're in the right beds, making sure that we have all these strategies to, to help with reducing infection and protecting our patients and, and we want to be known as that. We don't want to be the, the surveillance people, the, the hand hygiene police. We want to be helping and um, we want to have those conversations with people that, that are assisting our patients.
0: Do you feel that COVID really has taken your specialty area of medicine and brought it to the forefront and, you know, that you hope it stays
1: there so that people keep this on their mind all of the time? Oh, definitely. We do sort of feel that maybe it's our 15 minutes of fame mm. and maybe that's over, but we're hoping people don't forget about it because as we've we've talked about today, it's, it's so entrenched in every part of nursing, every part of healthcare – and we really can't ignore it. So it might have been our 15 minutes of fame, but I think the principles of in- infection prevention have, are really ingrained in people. And, and I know we're trying to get over COVID. We're all a little bit traumatised by that. But really, the really simple strategies will go a long way to helping us in the future to protect our patients.
2: Yeah. I, think, I think one last thing on that that I have seen is um, we've probably erred to – over application of PPE. So there there is there is a risk there's a waste associated with this. There's a there's actually even an availability of the right PPE when we do need it being threatened by over application of PPE. So I think my big sort of I'd implore everyone to look at your transmission based precautions and use just the level of PPE that's recommended because again it's trying to disrupt the chain rather than eliminate. So Yellow gowns, (laughs) we need to conserve these sorts of things. N95 masks, we need to conserve them um, while balancing risk, don't we?
1: Yeah, we do. I mean, we have great supply now, but I agree with you when things like – COVID happen with other high consequence infectious diseases, we go for the top level of PPE. We start there, but that doesn't mean that we can continue on with that. So we modify, we learn more about the disease, we learn more about the organism, we learn more about their trend, the transmission of it, and then we adjust. So sometimes it takes a while for people to feel com- confident and comfortable with adjusting down to a level of PPE that might not have every piece of PPE on that you, ne- that you think you need. But You know, that comes and it's having a bit of a trust in the system that that we are looking at how things are transmitted and we are applying the the PPE that will stop that transmission.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna have a go at summarising all of that fabulous content. And if I make a mistake, by all means (laughs) jump in. All right, so number one, know your bugs, love your bugs. And this is really all about the fact that everybody should have a basic understanding about in, you know, infectious and community-acquired uh, bugs so that we know what antibiotics should be given, the nurses should be able to, you know, like keep an eye to timing, etc., cetera, around that. Number two, hand hygiene. Um, this is something that we can never be complacent about and it's important not to just do it frequently, particularly around the bed space, but to do it correctly. Number three that there is an important role for nurses to play in the prescribing and deprescribing of antibiotics. We want to be keeping an eye on how long someone's been on antibiotics, do they actually still need their antibiotics, and preserving, you know, the giving of antibiotics for when it's absolutely necessary. Number four, respecting invasive devices. Anytime we're doing anything to our patients that is penetrating the barrier for protective, so that's cannulas... Um, urinary catheters anything that's you know penetrating the mucous membranes I think is what you said Uh, we need to be thinking this is an invasive big deal for our patients it's also a massive source of infection so we need to check that every single shift preferably um, and also be encouraging for the removal of those as soon as possible Number five is understanding precautions, and this is really about knowing, you know, about droplets, knowing about um, airborne, and making sure that we're matching that with the PPE uh, and and the hand hygiene, etc. That is necessary for those uh, diseases and illnesses. How'd it go? I think
2: that's yeah. fantastic.
0: Pretty good. <laughs> it's really great to have you on talking about this really important topic. So thanks very much, Michelle. Thank you for having me.
2: The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community, And encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2, and for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things.